0: Welcome to Free to be Faithful. This is a monthly program that is created by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to investigate various issues of interest to people of faith. My guest today is Mr. Tim Gigline, who's long been a friend of this program and of the LCMS. Tim, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much. It's so great to be back on the program. It's really always an honor to be here.
0: And Tim, you have been an advisor and an observer in the Washington area for a long time.
1: You know, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, ten years in the Senate and nearly eight years at the White House and uh, soon to be ten years at Focus uh, on the family. So, uh, you know, that that is a long time, uh, both uh, inside and outside of government. And I can honestly say that of all of the presidencies, uh that I've uh, been in Washington for beginning with the presidency of George H W Bush uh who just turned 94 and is now our uh, longest lived uh, US president in American history all the way up to and including uh the presidency of Donald Trump uh this presidency the Trump presidency uh has been uh truly uh one of the most uh, uh unique and ah historical uh, in many ways, presidencies, uh, I think, of our lifetime.
0: I think I agree with you on that. It was certainly uh, a surprise election, I think, in a lot of ways. Very few people thought that uh, Mr. Trump was, was had a remote chance even of getting the nomination, much less the uh, win the presidency. And yet he upheeled uh, a lot of people.
1: Well, may I say, uh, right across the street from the White House, in the middle of one of the most prominent parks in Washington. <clears throat> There's a very famous statue of Andrew Jackson. And, uh, you know, for those who, uh, who know him as president, uh, it's easy to forget uh, that he was trailing clouds of glory as one of our most important generals long before he was president uh, in uh, what is one of the most important battles in American history, uh, which was the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, during uh, the War of 1812. Uh, and it was a period of time uh, where uh, many uh, American people uh, thought that it was the second uh, British Revolution. Uh, and after the uh, extraordinary victory that Andrew Jackson led in the Battle of New Orleans, uh, he rode that all the way to the presidency. And really, when you, when you consider all of the, uh, the men who have been presidents, Uh, It's someone like Andrew Jackson, where it was such a monumentally uh, history-changing presidency. I mean, Andrew Jackson, you know, was a man who came into the White House and quite literally uh, turned the United States of America upside down, uh, getting rid of our National Bank, uh, you know, and and really beginning an era uh, that was, by any historic measure, one of the most revolutionary in America, and I mention all of that uh you know because Donald Trump, in my opinion, uh even after less than six hundred days at the white house uh, is of uh is of that history changing caliber uh his uh, his personnel decisions his policy decisions uh his international foreign security domestic policy decisions I mean my friend, these have been absolutely enormous, and, and like the Jackson era, I think we're going to be um, talking about, reading about, studying uh, the Trump era for many years to come, and as I say, uh, we are less than two years into this presidency.
0: We have to look at the uh, situation, really, from the viewpoint of religious liberty. How are we seeing things different from in the past?
1: Well, that's just one era that I think is, is, is really large. Uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, came into the White House uh, not known uh, as a person uh, in his profile who would necessarily champion uh, you know the rights of conscience and religious liberty, uh, and yet in these less than six hundred days, he has emerged as uh, as a remarkable. Uh, devotee of of religious liberty and conscience rights. Yes, I'll, I'll use just a couple of examples. All right. Uh, the the most obvious one, of course, is his decision uh, to put Justice Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, and we've already seen the contrails uh, of uh, of that decision uh, because in this term of the Supreme Court, the Masterpiece Cakes case, case uh, was a seven to two decision. But when you read a bit deeper uh, and you read uh, you know, some of the, the, the reasoning of the opinions of Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, you realize that the president uh, has chosen in Justice Gorsuch uh, potentially as big of a champion of conscience rights as the man uh, who Gorsuch was chosen to replace, Justice Antonin Scalia you know, uh, may I may say back to Jackson's model of turning up uh, things upside down in 600 days or less this president has already nominated and confer- successfully confirmed 21 appellate judges. You know, appellate judges are the most senior, most influential judges in the country second only to the United States Supreme Court. And in the history of the presidency, this is a big statement. We've never had 21 appellate or circuit judges uh, nominated and confirmed uh, to their uh, specific roles in this short of a period of time. The Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, has already said uh, that but for one week in August, he's canceling the traditional August recess, which means that the United States Senate will spend uh, some of its time confirming more federal judges. Uh, What that means uh, is that by the end of this calendar year, we will be beyond record-setting territory and up to 30 uh, appellate judges by the end of the year. I mean, that is breathtaking.
0: Well, One of the things Uh, to remember, Tim, is that these judges are lifetime appointments. They're not subject to, uh, to election.
1: You're absolutely right. Uh, once you are nominated and confirmed to the bench as a Supreme Court justice, an appellate a judge, uh, or a district judge, uh, you are there for a lifetime. And in the era that we're in, the legacy of those judges is as big as it has ever been. Their decisions for religious liberty, their decisions for conscience rights, you know, I, as I say, uh, it's very difficult to really express just what an enormous legacy the uh, the presidency of Donald Trump has been relative uh, to the American judiciary in a relatively short period of
0: time. I think you're absolutely right on that. I, I know uh, growing up, for example, the uh, effect of uh, President FDR, President Franklin Roosevelt, who was in office for what twelve years. And the impact that he had on the judiciary and many other things really lasted many, many decades beyond his death. Uh, As you pointed out, we have a number of things that are going on in the judiciary that affect the uh, religious liberty. We discussed very briefly the Masterpiece Cake Shop, but, you know, back in uh, not all that long ago, I think on June 14th, the Supreme Court had held a conference on Arlene's Flowers. That one's up before the Supreme Court. We're also going to be hearing about uh, NIF where the state of California has been telling pro-life centers that they've got to advertise for abortion. These
1: are three major cases and uh, and I'm happy very briefly to disaggregate them. Please uh, do. The master, yes, the, 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 the Jack Phillips Masterpiece uh, Cakes case. I was very honored to be in the court uh, room for, uh, that particular case. This was a terrific victory for Masterpiece Cakes and for Jack Phillips. And, uh, and the Supreme Court found by a 7-2 decision, uh, that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had singled him out for being a Christian, uh, and had therefore purposely punished, uh, him. And in the uh, light of it, he had lost, uh, you know, up to 40% of his business. Uh, He is a cake artist, and he said that as a Christian cake artist, he could bake cakes for any number of occasions, uh, but uh, the way that his art uh, uh, meshes uh, with the planning of a wedding, uh, he could not and refused to be uh, coerced into participating uh, in a same-sex marriage. This was a very important victory in the Supreme Court. The second case you mentioned uh, is the Pregnancy Resource Center Network in California, Uh, the California General Assembly passed a law, and it was signed into law uh, by Governor Jerry Brown. The law says that if you are a pregnancy uh, resource center uh, founded uh, by Christians, uh, founded specifically on the pro-life cause, uh, that if you are a pregnancy resource center in California, uh, that you are mandated by state law to advertise for abortion uh, in your uh, in your pregnancy resource center. I mean, this is a total frontal assault on our religious liberty, and we are waiting the results of this case. And my guess is that we will have these results uh, as soon uh, as this week, and uh, and not later than two weeks from now. Probably, we will know the result of this case. Uh, in other words, uh, in the next 10 business days. And I'm very uh, sanguine and very hopeful, not only uh, about the success of that case, but about the margin of victory. And the third case, uh, as you say, uh, stems from Washington State. Uh, it is a, a wonderful uh, floral uh, shop owner who happens to be a Christian. Her name is Baronel Stutzman. And uh, she uh, was coerced uh, by... Uh, two, uh, two homosexuals who came into her shop and said uh, that she uh, must, uh, you know, uh, do a floral arrangement for their marriage or threaten a punishment. Uh, unfortunately, Washington State has sided uh, with them against her, and her, uh, her uh, wonderful attorneys at Alliance Defending Freedom have petitioned the Supreme Court to take up her case on the grounds of religious liberty, rights of conscience, and free speech, Uh, and we're waiting to hear uh, whether the court will do so. Uh, Their unwillingness to do so, in my opinion, would not be a good sign, so we are hoping that they do not remand the case to Washington State. We are hoping that they take up this case and deepen their narrative uh, of religious liberty.
0: Also in the case of Arlene's Flowers, one area where it differs a little bit from Masterpiece is that not only did they say she had to do with this, she was punished for it. Her, her business, she lost her business, and now they're going after her personally. She, has, yes, she may yes. be losing her house, she may be losing her life savings, everything over and above the uh, business.
1: You know, th- this is very important to know. I mentioned a moment ago that Jack Phillips, uh, in the interim, had lost 40% uh, of, of, his, uh, of his business. In the case of Arlene's Flowers, this is the name of her shop, uh, as you say, it's not just a frontal assault on the viability of that business, but also whether they uh, can legally step into her private savings and her, and her uh, possessions. Uh, for a lot of Americans, this is where conscience and religious liberty meets property rights, not just free speech rights. I mean, I think this is a... I think this is actually a very good uh, First Amendment case, uh, you know, for a host of reasons. But I think also, uh, as we get into this national debate on whether religious liberty should trump sexual liberty, or whether uh, sexual liberty should trump religious liberty, we're finding that increasingly this gets into the question of how a person makes his or her living, it gets into the question of property rights, and it also gets into a question uh, in these uh, lawsuits, and this particular one uh, went all the way to the Washington State Supreme Court, it gets into the question of what is actually the power of the state uh, toward a potential personal ruination of somebody who uh, exercises his or her conscience rights. So to use a cliche, these are very, very deep waters.
0: And there's more than that uh, coming up. We've got, there's still the case of Sweet Cakes uh, by Melissa. That's before the Oregon Court of Appeals right now. In Arizona, Brush and Nib Lost, that was a group, the uh, two two young women who do custom uh, greeting cards and custom posters for various events, high school graduations, uh, uh, memorial services, but they will not do Announcements for gay wedding and the state of Arizona has said, oh, yeah, you will. And so that's another one that's, that's hanging fire.
1: Well, and, and, and may I say that there, there's yet another case, which I which I'm eager to mention from First Liberty. Uh, this is the case uh, from Bladensburg, Maryland, where we have a, a cemetery. And in that cemetery uh, are buried war dead dating, uh, I believe, from World War One. And there is a uh, major uh, lawsuit underway as to whether uh, a a beautiful, large cross, uh, which uh, is most prominent in this cemetery, whether it should be uh, uh, removed. And uh, the American Legion, uh, which is one of the largest veteran service organizations in the United States, says that when Bladensburg uh, was established as a cemetery, that there was uh, that there was no opposition from placing this beautiful prominent cross, which is uh, you know uh, you know uh, overriding one of the most iconic symbols in that part of Maryland. And now uh, there is a major lawsuit as to whether that cross must be demonstrably removed. And may I say, when you actually dip into the details of this case, the more you get into it, the more disturbing it is. There was actually one recommendation that talked about chopping off each side of the cross. There was another uh, proposal or discussion, you know, about throwing a tarp over the cross. I mean, these whole questions about public iconography, public artwork, I mean, if we start down this road, does this mean that we remove all the crosses from Arlington National Cemetery, that we remove all the crosses and Stars of David, uh, which are in... Uh, uh overlooking uh, Normandy Beach? Do we have to go into all of our uh, publicly kept cemeteries uh, where the government paid for those cross headstones or Stars of David? And do we have to remove all of those? I mean, once you start down uh, what most people view as an irrational uh, uh, trajectory, uh, you realize just how important our religious liberty is in the whole uh, aesthetic appeal and look of our country and nation. We, we are a religious republic.
0: Tim, I want to go a little bit into the concept of the left-hand kingdom, if you will. Uh, I look at President Trump, and he is a deeply flawed individual to my mind. He's been married three times. Uh, he's obviously had a, uh, a sexual history that is not something that that a man should be proud of. He is brash. He has a a number of failings, and yet I just keep thinking. I, I one of the things I do here is I work with uh, Pastor Will Whedon on the on his Thy Strong Word program, and we just got through going over uh, the book of uh, Jeremiah, and there is a specific phrase in there where Jeremiah is quoting the word of God to uh, to Judah, stating that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was God's servant. So I think the lesson here that we are learning, at least I'd like to get your take on this, is that the left-hand kingdom, which is the kingdom of the world as opposed to the kingdom of the church and the kingdom of the spirit, the right-hand world, God works through these agencies and the vessels like all of us are flawed, but still working through it. And I think there is a lesson here, although President Trump in many ways is not an admirable man. But well may
1: I, may I say yes, i think I think that this is where the the, the theology that you have outlined uh, the the left and the and the right kingdoms. Uh, St. Augustine referred to the city of God and the city of man. this very important distinction. Now, it's one thing, uh, if the United States of America, of course, was a theocracy and, uh, where, where we had, you know, a, a, bishop in chief or a pastor in chief where, uh, we had a constitutional premise, uh, that you had a particular religious test that you had to pass. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. But America is a constitutional republic. We have no, uh, religious tests uh... to hold a uh, national office uh... that that is not to say in any manner that virtue you know helps and and guides and sustains liberty and and freedom uh, benjamin franklin uh, famously wrote that there is no freedom without order and no order without virtue and and i think that that's very important uh... to say you know that there there is an ongoing narrative about how can people of faith Vote for or support President Trump or Vice President Pence uh, in this regard, and and I think uh, that that the answer is is a is a difficult answer. It's a complex answer in the way that you have outlined it. It's not an easy answer. You know uh, when we when we look to uh, the father of our country, George Washington. Uh, we, we reflect uh, on his reflections that character is destiny, that character is central, and yet you're right, we are all flawed, we are all fallen. And that's not to let anybody off the hook as President of the United States or Senator or governor or whatever it is, uh, but it is to uh, take a realistic uh, uh, you know assessment of God and man in the public square, and to, and frankly, to be very honest, in the Western experience, you know, on how God has chosen to use men and women, both those who were fellow believers and those who were were not. And I think that that kind of assessment uh, is necessarily uh, complicated, but it's important that we have this national discussion.
0: I think you're right on that, and, you know, we look at, uh, I look back on a number of things. President uh, President Obama certainly was a very good man so was President uh, so was President Carter they were good men in the in the moral sense of course we're all flawed but perhaps they were not perhaps they were not proponents of, of enough of the spirit of who we are as a people. I've heard it said that our, our people, the American people, tend to be religious. Our government must be secular. And I think the problem has been, and we've seen it here in Missouri, and I think we're seeing it in other uh, other states, where the government is not simply neutral. Toward faith, but actively hostile to it. We certainly have an element of the public that is, but now it's going over into the public area, into into, into uh, governmental areas, where we have seen government actually being hostile to faith.
1: Well, I think I think that uh, that government uh, hostility to faith, unfortunately, is endemic in real examples that we've uh, discussed. When you look at the Jack Phillips case. Uh, in Colorado, when you look at the Barronell Stutzman case in Washington State, when you look at the photography case that you mentioned in New Mexico, when you look at the Cross case uh, in Maryland, what you learn, in fact, uh, is that there are some in government, there are some who hold the authority and power of government, and they have chosen to use that authority and power against the religious liberty and conscience rights of many of our fellow believers and it's very important that we not only speak out about these things but that vocationally whether you are uh, you know a, a host uh, of, a, of an important radio program uh, whether you are a supreme court justice whether you are a supreme court lawyer Uh, you know, whether you are a holder of office, whatever your vocation is, it's very important that we not only speak, which is important, but that we also, uh, you know, find uh, faith and action together, that we are called upon to be in the public arena and to speak truth to power. And there is a reason, a very important reason, that speech and assembly and religion are placed in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. You know, uh, facts, said John Adams, are hard things. Uh, and it's very important uh, constitutionally, and that's where all of this goes. It's important constitutionally that we absolutely protect conscience and religious liberty. When the, when, 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 when the author of the Constitution, James Madison, when he wrote that conscience is the most sacred of all property that is a very big statement uh and it's one that we ignore at our own peril.
0: it is uh and unfortunately i think we're at a point in our society where there's are some areas where neither side can compromise I'm, I'm looking specifically to abortion people will say it's a woman's right one other side will say no it's killing i don't see the way they, they can compromise on that
1: you know one of my uh, favorite public intellectuals is a woman uh, called Mary Everstock. She is a senior research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute, and she is a, uh, you know, a remarkable, remarkable thinker. And she wrote a piece in the Weekly Standard uh, uh, a few uh, weeks ago, and her piece was called A Time of Reckoning. And the, the narrative of her piece is essentially second thoughts about the sexual revolution. And I want to go back to where we began our interview, because I think that so much of the debate uh, that we are having in this program, so much of the debate that we're having in our nation, is a politics uh, of, uh, you know, 2018 that arises actually from the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Culture leads. And politics arises from culture. You know, uh, culture is preeminent, and if we want to look at the questions of homosexual marriage, if we want to look at the questions of abortion, and and so many of the subjects that we've talked about, you know, these, many of these seeds were formally planted in the 1960s and in the 1970s, and in that social and moral revolution, that literally swept across our country and sought to create a new orthodoxy. And very unfortunately, much of that sweeping change of revolution was an attack, a frontal attack, on the Constitution and on religious liberty. And I think now people are, are having important second thoughts about the impact of of the 1960s and 70s on our very way of life.
0: I think you're right, Tim. And one thing, I've gotten some criticism sometimes saying that, uh, gee, you know, those of us who are faithful should be just preaching the gospel. But how can we do that because we are commanded to act according to the gospel? This is the point that I'm trying to raise with with with, with colleagues, uh, other Lutherans, in fact, who will say, well, no, we, we don't need to be involved in in, in these issues. We have to be involved in these issues. God has commanded us to be involved in it. Luther was very, very clear on the concept of vocation. We use our vocation to try to create God's will here.
1: Uh, I, I could not agree more strongly. And, uh, and I want to mention something, because uh, you know, this, uh, the thing that I want to mention comes before politics and, and arises out of culture, and it's consonant with vocation. You know, I've been following very closely the, the 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 studies that Google has been doing over the last several years on the concept of loneliness in our culture, not just in America, but in all the advanced countries of the world: France, Germany, uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, Portugal, etc. And every one of these reliable studies says that we are now suffering in. Western civilization of what they say are epidemic proportions of people who feel lonely. You know, the, the, the New York Times published a very harrowing story about the so-called birth darts. There was something like 4,000 people uh, who died just in the last few months who died alone. No family, no friends, no one to care for them. And the fact is, is that is that in the Christian faith uh, we have a way in community to deal with this. God places us in families, in communities, in, 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 in networks of, of like-minded people, not on social media, but real flesh and blood, you know? And, and this is very important, and our faith should all, teaches us, That we are, that we must reach out and we have to go share the gospel. We have to share the good news. Because if we're not doing that, then everything else is completely uh, second, third, and, and last. Christ first, other people second, and ourselves last. Absolutely. That's an awfully
0: wonderful way to live. I agree with you, and, and that's one reason why my pastor always calls those of us in the congregation his brothers and sisters in Christ. Tim, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you again for so much for being on the program. Your insights on what's going on in the nation's capital and how it affects those of us of faith are vital to us.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm very hopeful about our nation. I think our best days are ahead of us. And, uh, and I think uh, that, that, that Christ is risen, and so uh, our hope is, uh, is there.
0: Well, thank you very much, Tim.